0: Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 13. Although, once again, and uh, it it wasn't supposed to be this way, as I mentioned last week in the sermon, we will not be in Hebrews 13 for long. Uh, This is supposed to be the week that we finished Hebrews 13, 9 through 14, and and, uh, continued walking through the various elements of uh, Hebrews 13 toward the end. But, as I've mentioned a couple of times now, just to kind of let let you know, but I I guess for the people that are listening at home, um, I got a really good question after the service last week that warrants our time and consideration before moving on. Throughout the course of the book of Hebrews, we have drawn out from the text, which is always the way you want to study, right? Drawing out from the text. We've drawn out from the text numerous warnings about the Day of Judgment not only as an impact upon the unbeliever, but warnings for, about the Day of Judgment as it relates to the children of God. The fearfulness of the Day of Judgment for the child of God, that as Peter says, the righteous will scarcely be saved. He says, if the righteous scarcely be saved, what will be for those who have not received the gospel? Throughout Hebrews, Hebrews, Chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 12. We have seen warnings about the reality of the Day of Judgment and the accountability that it will hold so that we have been compelled to care, to care greatly about the daily, nitty-gritty, day-by-day, day-in-and-day-out Christian life that we enter into that rest of Canaan, if you recall that message on the Sabbath that we labor to enter into that rest lest we fall short. Well, then for the last three weeks, we've been talking about grace from the Bible. And we've seen from the Scriptures that grace operates devoid of merit or effort or debt. We've seen that grace is an all or nothing proposition. You've got it or you don't. It's in or it's out. When we are given grace, we are not given half measures, but grace is fully given. And the question that was asked to me last Sunday after the evening service, which is so good and so very worthy of our time, is how do these two ideas reconcile? How do we reconcile grace and a day of judgment? How can we be called to be fearful and ready for the day of judgment and thus be compelled unto righteous living And also be determined to live in grace to have a determined mindset that I do not need to earn my favor with God. And it has, in fact, been this difficulty that typically lends people to go one way or the other, right? To wholly invest in grace at the expense of their feeling of urgency under righteousness or to invest in righteousness at the expense of the reality of grace? How can there possibly be a day of judgment if mine is the favor of God? And this answer has, in a manner of speaking, already been given to us. We've just not formally connected all the dots. So tonight I get to do that. I get to take several concepts of which you will already be familiar if you have been listening, or I'm not saying that in a accusatory way, if if if, if you've been around, you may not have assimilated it all, but if you've been around, you've heard these things, but we're going to connect some dots. So I take you back in time this evening to Hebrews 11, and it's only one chapter back in time, but it's probably actually pretty far back in time uh, as far as... The, the pace that we've been going. But you recall how in Hebrews chapter 11, when we were walking through it, verse 6 became very important to us. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The thing, and indeed the only thing that the Bible says truly pleases God as we look at New Testament theology, New Testament doctrine, is Faith. And let's remember our working definition of faith from way back then. Faith is when what I know becomes what I believe and will thus naturally affect what I do. If I believe something, it will inevitably be manifest in the manner in which I live my life. I can know things without it fundamentally affecting my life. But if I believe them, then I will live according to them, at least as a general rule. That doesn't mean I won't have hard days. That doesn't mean there won't be conflict in my soul. That doesn't mean there won't be things that will hinder my capacity to, to live in them by... by, by uh, um, virtue of, uh, of, say, other habits or, or things that need to be worked out of my life. But if I believe something, then it will work itself out in the manner in which I, I orient my life. And so this is the difference between knowing something and believing something, right? This is the difference between having a head knowledge of something and having faith. And I know I have faith, James 2 tells us, when I bear out the fruit of what I claim to believe, when what I believe affects what I do. That is the evidence that I actually believe it. It's not, instead of just knowing it, or as opposed to just knowing it. So when a man wants to know whether or not he has faith, as I said, it will be evidenced in the things which he does in relation to the truth claims he believes. Works do not justify a man before God. We know that from Scripture. But works do justify the faith that is in the man. Faith justifies the man before God. The works that he does reflect or justify, validate that he has that faith that will then justify him before God. Faith is not established by works, but faith is demonstrated by works. Faith is the hinge upon which the promises of God turn. We see this principle operating throughout the New Testament. We see this in justification by faith. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and nine. you know them, you're familiar. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We went to this just a couple of weeks ago as we were defining uh, grace because this helps us understand grace. The interplay between grace and faith here is strong. The salvation of our souls from the reality of sin is not a product of our effort or of our merit or an outworking of debt. Rather, it is given by Grace. But how do I tap into that grace? See, because Jesus Christ purchased forgiveness for all men on the cross, but not all men will be saved. Not all men will receive the grace that leads to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus purchased our justification on the cross. We are then given imputed righteousness because of that purchase of justification, but not all men will receive it. So what is it then that taps us into the grace of imputed righteousness? By grace are ye saved through faith, right? Faith is what taps us into that grace. God gives grace to those who exercise faith. I tap into grace through faith. Faith is that requirement. If we want to say, what must a man do to be saved? Believe the gospel. Faith taps me into that grace. And the proof that I have exercised faith unto salvation is by the works that it produces. Not that it will produce the works of sinless perfection. Not that it will produce the works of me believing every single promise the Bible espouses. But rather that when I accept... When I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, I will produce the faith that is consistent with that belief. So in order to go to to, to accept the gospel, I must, or to go to heaven, I must believe the gospel. The gospel says Jesus died for my sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. If I believe that promise, I will be saved. And I will bear in my life, my life will produce the fruit or the works that are consistent with my faith in that promise. And what are the works that are consistent with believing that Jesus died for my sins according to the Scriptures and He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures? The natural outworking of that faith is that I will cease from attempting to earn my own way to heaven. I will cease from my dead works and put my faith in God. I cannot both be working to earn my way to heaven and say that I have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save me from my sins. Those two cannot go together. So it doesn't mean that I will exercise faith in every of the other promises of the the Word of God or that those will be produced in my life just because I have put my faith and trust in Christ. Now, that should follow in time, right? That's, That's a discussion between salvation and sanctification. But... The inevitable and the absolutely inevitable product in my life of saving faith is that I will stop trying to earn my way to to heaven because that is the work that is produced by the faith of believing that Jesus died on the cross for me. The fruit of my life denies my claim of faith if I try to work my way to heaven and then, of course, that would make me wonder whether or not that faith is genuine. But if I have ceased from my dead works and I am placing my full faith and trust in Christ and that, is what, that, and that is the fruit of my life, then that fruit justifies my faith. And notice how the work is tied to the truth claim. The condition for justification is belief in the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures buried, rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. In believing this, I cease from my dead works and I put my faith in Christ to save me from my sins. But there are so many other promises in the Bible made to Christ followers, which are not a part of saving faith, aren't there? As a believer, I'm called in Matthew chapter 6 to take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. In other words, Christ has called me in Matthew chapter 6 as one who is a follower of him to rely upon him for my provision, my well-being, and to not be overcome with worry about the future. I am called as a child of God to exercise my faith in God's love for me and so to not worry about tomorrow, to live in the sufficiency of today. Now, that promise is very, very different that, that faith condition is very, very different than the promise of salvation. Christ died for my sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. I cannot say that because a man in his life or because a man's life does not produce the fruit of, wor- of not worrying about tomorrow, that his life does not produce a fruit unto salvation. Because the fruit unto salvation is not that you believe Matthew chapter 6 is promised to not worry about tomorrow. Salvation is contingent upon the fact that I believe that Jesus died on the cross according to the Scriptures and he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So the fruit of the gospel or the the, uh, fruit of salvation is based upon believing the promise of the gospel, not believing the promise of provision. And the fruit of believing the promise of the gospel is that I cease from my dead works as a means of securing for me eternity in heaven and forgiveness of sin. And I trust Christ's completed work to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Now, if I don't bear that fruit, then I should wonder whether I have saving faith. But I should not wonder whether I have saving faith because my life doesn't produce the fruit of trusting Christ for tomorrow of taking no thought for the morrow, that work will be the produce. If I want that work, if I want to see that in my life, then I need to assimilate the faith of Matthew 6. I need to put my full faith in Jesus's promise that he can provide for me, at which point as I assimilate that promise into my life and as what I know becomes what I believe, I will know that I believe it when it produces in my heart the natural work of me not worrying about tomorrow. And then I'll know that I have believed that promise unto faith. Now, naturally, we would expect that as believers grow in faith, they will assimilate more of Christ's promises into their lives. This is the process of sanctification. This is the process of growth. And he will evidence that by the works that are consistent with one who believes those promises. Okay, so let's take this idea and think again about Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We are saved by grace through faith. My faith gives me access to God's grace. My faith gives me access to God's grace. And the produce of God's grace in the salvation sense will be this imputed righteousness, will be salvation. And my life will then bear the fruit of this faith through ceasing from my dead works. And this idea isn't just relevant to salvation. This is how every second of the Christian life is supposed to work. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so I'm justified when I, by faith, accept grace, and then that ushers me into imputed righteousness, and that is salvation. That's by faith. But notice verse 2. By whom also, on top of being justified by faith, by whom also we have access to, by this same faith, by faith, into what? This grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We enter into the relationship by faith and then by the same faith, we have access not just to the grace of salvation, but we have access to the grace of life. The grace within which, upon which, you and I stand on a moment-by-moment basis is a grace that is accessed how? By faith. By faith. Don't. Faith taps me into grace. I want you to catch that. I want you to catch that. Faith is what taps me into grace. Faith is what taps me into the grace unto salvation. Faith is what taps me into the grace in which, wherein we stand. The remainder of my life consists of exercising faith in various promises of God and so tapping into the grace of God in that area of life to produce the fruit of righteousness in me. None of it is done by me. If you aren't worried about tomorrow because of the promise that God gave you in Matthew chapter 6, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. That is not because you have heard that promise and then begun to exercise amazing self control over your own emotional state. That is not how that works. It is not because you have self-actualized peace and contentment into your life and so now you can get onto another plane because Jesus pointed the way to this new and interesting plane of living and you've elevated to the next degree of self-actualization in your Christian life. That is not how that works. It is not because you've simply learned not to care. Well, Jesus has it all under control, so I'm just going to walk through life without any cares in the world because, like, who cares about life anyway? I'm just going to sit on the couch and eat my potato chips and let life happen. That's not it either. If you have gotten past that worry in your life, in a Matthew chapter 6 manner, if you have put your faith and trust in what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 about taking no thought for tomorrow, for the tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, it is because you took God's promise at His word, you believed that promise, and so because you believed that promise, the faith that is in you tapped you into God's grace by which the peace of God that passes all understanding is able to keep your heart and mind, The peace of God is God's reward in the life of one who exercises faith. I believe God's promise. Therefore, God then taps me into the grace to be able to take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And I have that peace work over me and overcome me because I believe God's promise and thus God gives me his grace to do so. By grace... Through faith, you are not worried about the things of tomorrow because you know tomorrow is in God's hands. Today is the day that, that I'm living. And we could do the same exercise for every faith claim. We could walk through whatever your favorite one is. And we could work through how what is actually happening there is I am believing the promise and then God is giving me the grace necessary to then see that promise worked out in my life and I know I believe it. I know I have faith because it's working itself out in my life by grace. So that we find the reward of faith is grace in your life to produce the fruit of righteousness. But what happens if I don't exercise that faith? Going back to the justification example, if I fall short of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, I decide that it's easier to work my way to heaven or I decide that I, I have to, uh, uh, um, by my own merit, find my way to heaven. Well, Jesus Christ still died on the cross for that sin, The forgiveness is there. The grace is still on the table. Only if I don't tap into it by faith, the grace is left on the table, right? There will be no one burning in hell one day because God was unwilling to allow them into his heaven. They will be there because they have rejected the grace of God that was purchased for them on the cross. Jesus 1 John 2.2 2 says, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the entire world. Christ's blood was sufficient to cover the sins of every man, woman, and child, past, present, and future for eternity. So if someone is not in heaven, it's not because provision was not made for them. It is because they rejected that grace by not exercising faith, right? The offer is there in full, The purchase was there, the blood of Jesus Christ, but it was left on the table, untapped. We would call that rejected. And since the grace of God does not rest upon me unto salvation in this scenario, what will my fate be on the day of judgment? My fate will be just that, graceless judgment because I never tapped into said grace. I left the grace on the table, So because the grace was left on the table, the judgment is what remains. Graceless judgment. Not because I could not have believed, not because the grace was not there for my faith, if I had it, and thus to be rewarded by that grace, but because I rejected that grace. So those who reject grace will realize that loss before the throne and that loss that for, for those who have rejected the grace of salvation, that loss for them will mean eternal damnation. The same thing applies to a believer, in fact. In Romans 14, Paul is teaching the church about the nature of the weaker brethren principle. We'll be there on Tuesday night in, 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 in due time. In this principle, those who have a full understanding of their liberty... Through the scriptures, and who are willing to exercise that liberty to a greater extent, are called not to despise those who have chosen not to exercise that liberty for whatever reason. And conversely, those who do not exercise their liberty in Christ for whatever reason they've chosen not to are exhorted to avoid judging those who do exercise that liberty. And the particular context of this instruction is between those believers who have chosen to, in their liberty, eat meat and then other believers who have chosen not to eat meat. Knowing that every man will rise and fall by their own master. We talked a little bit about that already. That it is not my job to judge a man or to hold a man in contempt for uh, 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 for their scriptural understanding, because there 's coming a day where each man will either stand or fall before God, and God will judge him and of course we 're talking about judgment on tuesday nights right we 'll we'll, we'll get there and we 'll get to the bottom line of the ins and the outs of what biblical judgment looks like and what and, and how we exercise it and, and and when we can exercise it and when we shouldn 't and what is us judging and what is us telling others what God has judged and we'll get into all that. And Romans 14 is an important passage in understanding these things but toward the end of the chapter is where I want to direct you this evening. I tried to give you a little bit of insight, a little bit of context to get us through the chapter without going through the chapter but toward the end of Romans 14 we read this in verses 16 through 23. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God, and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense." It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat because he eateth not of faith for whatsoever is not of faith is sin." Now, this message is not about judging. That's Tuesday nights. It's about grace. But it, there is this reality of how does grace coexist with judgment? I'm not going to explain this thoroughly, and that's kind of driving me crazy right now. But we'll get there. But Paul calls for the people in Christ to follow after the principles of the kingdom. Righteousness, peace, Joy, the principles of the kingdom, above the carnal things, bickering about meats and drinks and such, particularly upon those who regard their freedoms, to guard their consciences. And he he particularly calls upon those who regard their freedoms, who understand their liberties, to carefully guard the consciences of those who do not. Paul says to them, don't destroy the work of God for your meat. Far better to limit your freedoms around believers that have a more sensitive conscience, the weaker brethren, than to harm the conscience of a brother who is weak. Far better that than to cause division so that you can have your liberties. And I know that's a whole can of worms that we're not going to tap into tonight. We'll get there on Tuesdays. So then he exhorts, do you have faith? And the idea here is, do you think it's okay to eat meat even though these other people don't? Do you have that faith? Do you regard that liberty? Good, great, have it to yourself. (laughs) Live it out, but to yourself. Happy is the man, he says. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth, that would be God alloweth. Enjoy the things that you have within your liberty. Just enjoy them when your brother's not around. Happy is he that does not condemn himself for the things that the Lord allows. But don't compel a man who does not have this faith to do that which is in opposition to his conscience before the Lord. Because in doing so, You're compelling him unto something which, though it's not a transgression in action, if a person who only ate vegetables ate meat, he would not be in action transgressing in any way, shape, or form anything of God's expectations. But it is an offense to his conscience and something that is wholly unacceptable, thus, for him to be able to do. Because in order for him to do it, he must be in a place where he is willing to rebel against that which is intrinsically in him as right before God, which means in his heart is rebellion. Thus, he is, in fact, sinning. Why? Because he cannot eat that meat in faith. And if he does something that is outside of faith, then he is doing something faithless. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Which means he's not pleasing God. It is sin to him, even if it's not sin to you. I know that's a hard concept and I, we're not going to go there. I, no, we're not going to go there. We'll, we'll cover that later. We've, we've covered it before. Most of, you, most of you know my teaching on this. So when Paul says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, that's what he's talking about. Okay, so let's tie it all together. Let's tie this idea back to what we've talked about. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Romans 14 says that if I do anything, even if it is tying my shoe outside of faith, it is sin to me because it is not done in faith, therefore it cannot please God. And finally, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that what faith, And by the way, children, you can't go up to mom and dad and say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I don't have enough faith. I can't wash the dishes, mom and dad. That's outside of faith. Don't go there, okay? We're not here to manipulate doctrine. Okay, now I've got to start back at the beginning and connect these dots, sorry. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Romans 14 says that when I do anything outside of faith... It is sin to me because it is not done in faith. And finally, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, that what faith does when it is exercised properly is, and and Romans 5, 1 and 2 says this as well, right? It taps me into grace. When I exercise faith, it taps me into grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, that saving faith taps me into saving grace. Romans chapter 5 extends that to say the grace wherein I I stand as a believer is tapped into through said same faith. Faith in God's promises. So when I fail to exercise faith in any area of my life, I step into sin, and so I fall short of the provision of grace that God has ordained for me in that situation. And perhaps this is best summed up by what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the, faith, uh, in the flesh, excuse me, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life of a believer is a life which is called to stand in grace by faith. I'm alive, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. My heart is still beating. My lungs are still breathing in air. My blood is still circulating. My mind is still running. But as I live this life, I live it crucified. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And what does that mean? That means that the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith. That whether I eat or drink or whatsoever I do, I do all to the glory of God. And how is it that I do it to the glory of God? I do everything I do by faith, right? Because faith is what pleases God. And when I exercise faith, I tap into the grace necessary to then live in the manner that God has called me to live. To do all things without murmuring, disputing. To in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning me. To bear love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All of those things I tap into. I tap into the grace of life. I tap into the Spirit and the power and the promises that the Spirit has for me by faith. Because that is what pleases God. Well, what happens if I don't exercise this faith? And Christians do this. Well, yeah, the Bible says this, but you know what? Eh. And we don't think of it that way. We don't think of it that way when I don't extend love to a brother or a sister in Christ. We don't think of it that way when I don't love my neighbor as myself. Well, yeah, the Bible says love my neighbor as myself, but God didn't know my neighbor. Right, and we kind of we can get tongue in cheek about it, and we can kind of uh, uh, grind down the edges of such little hints of a lack of faith. But we do this, don't we? In any number of ways, we do this, and sometimes it can even be kind of funny. I've had something on my heart a little bit and it's something that I was meaning to talk to the men of the church about and never got around to it. Better better late than never. Um, I was listening to the scriptures the other day and because um, I listen on audio book a lot of times when I'm doing things. And um, there was a, a passage that related in, in the, the, the Pentateuch to authority. And I was reminded... Of Paul's discussions in the New Testament as it related to authority and how we interact with, how we even speak about the rulers of our people. And God makes it very clear that you do not curse the ruler of your people. And Paul went through this as it related to his own trial where he um, called the man before him a whited wall until he realized that this was the high priest, at which point he actually acknowledged that he should not have done that because the scriptures say that you do not curse the ruler of your people. And I thought about how I talk about our president. Even before my church, uh, it's no... Uh, mystery to anyone that our president right now is not good at his job and yet I was convicted about how I speak about the ruler of our people and as a pastor or a spiritual representative and a spiritual example to God's people that is not good for me I ought not speak about the ruler of our people that way it's funny It's easy, but it's not right. This is a way that I can gloss over that little bit of faith, right? It's so easy. And I'll get a chuckle out of everyone that's around me because we all know the nature of our leader, his deficiencies of character and such. It's low hanging fruit. But if you ask me, based upon the teachings of Scripture, can I do said thing in faith? No. No. So we do this, right? We, we do this. We, we see the things that the Scriptures tell us to do, and we are able to, for one reason or another, gloss over them because of one, one reason or another. But what do I do when that happens? What, 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 when, what happens when I do that? That's where I was going. What happens when I don't exercise this faith? I lose out on some grace. What if I have seen the power of God unto salvation... And I've realized the transforming power of grace, and I've seen its superiority. In our Hebrews 13 context, I've seen its superiority to a legal system of works. And then I learn all of the other promises and the exhortations of grace to love my labor and to live unspotted from the world and to take no thought for the things of the morrow. And instead of submitting to those promises and exhortations by faith and living in the grace of God to produce this righteousness in me, what if I continue in sin that grace may abound? allowing the fact that I am safe kept from hellfire to be my excuse to grieve or to quench the Spirit of God persist persistent sin? What if I submit myself back under a religious system whereby I invest myself in outward displays of morality and ritual outside of the extension of grace and the production of the Spirit of God in me? And so I spend my time, say, judging others, comparing myself to them, holding them up to my standard, mocking them, whatever it might be, failing to walk in Christ. The grace of God is there for me. But as a Christian, I've left it on the table, haven't I? I have walked outside of that which I can do in faith, Therefore, the grace of God that undergirds said promise is not tapped into. It's there. It's just left on the table. I have instead gone my own way. I am a believer because I believed God's promises in the gospel. And this faith gives me access to the grace that was purchased unto forgiveness and eternal life. That grace is mine. I've tapped into that grace by that faith. But I have not believed the promise of God unto this area of Christian growth. And so my lack of faith means that I fall short of the grace that is purchased by Christ unto those areas of growth and righteousness in my lives. That grace is left on the table. And this is why when we speak of the day of judgment in the life of a believer particularly, we speak of it not in the idea of punishment or in the context of punishment, but we speak in terms of loss of reward or reward itself. Reward and loss. We invoked Paul's teachings in 1 Corinthians 3, and let me remind you of what that teaching is. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 to 15, Paul says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it, um, Paul describes a day of judgment in terms of reward and loss, that there is a pile of gold, silver, and precious stones, which is a manifest rep- representation of the things that, are, uh, that I have done in my life that are commendable, that has pleased God, which means that is a pile of what? Of faith. Because what pleases God? Faith. If it's commendable before God, then what is it? It's a pile of faith. It has eternal value because it is spiritual in nature. And then there's a pile, and that's a pile of things that were done in this life which God does not commend, which did not please God and they have no eternal value because they're carnal in nature. Now, we can say it's a pile of righteousness, and we can say it's a pile of sin, and that's absolutely correct. But if I, in the natural human way, then connect the pile of righteousness to actions and the pile of unrighteousness to actions, I have done a disservice to the metaphor. Because can a person go to church outside of faith? Yes, Absolutely. Can a person do moral things in order to to, uh, earn himself favor with man? Can a person do moral things in order that he can uh, compare himself to others and judge others and be better than others? Yes. So could that pile of wood, hay, and stubble contain a bunch of moral things? Yes. Absolutely it can. So we are not looking at a pile of moral things and a pile of immoral things. We are not looking at a pile of of self of of, 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 uh, of um, uh, um, culturally acceptable things or of culturally unacceptable things, even church-culturally acceptable things and church-culturally unacceptable things. We are looking at a pile of faith and a pile of that which is done outside of faith, which means we are looking at a pile of... of Faith works that thus have tapped into grace, and we are looking at a pile of things where grace has been left on the table. And this is where we must be so very careful. If we don't keep everything in context, so Paul says in second Corinthians chapter five verse ten, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or or bad. Yes, we will give an account for the things done in our body, whether good or bad. Yes, there will be a pile of gold, silver, precious stones of wood, hay, and stubble separated by whether any given action is good or bad. But here's the million dollar question. What decides whether an action goes in the good pile or the bad pile? Track it back with me. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I live by the faith of the Son of God. I stand in grace. Do you see it? The things which go into the good pile are the things which please God. What pleases God is not inherently moral actions or religious actions. It is faithful actions. The things which go into the bad pile are the things which displease God. What displeases God is not inherently immoral actions or irreligious actions. It is faithless actions. And of course there's a there's emerging, right? There are, you can't do immoral actions in faith because it's completely contradictory to the character of God. So we see that, right? We can acknowledge that idea that you're not going to have in the good pile immoral actions done in faith because that pile doesn't exist. That that scenario doesn't exist. As long as we gauge morality by God's standard and not man's. If we're talking about societally immoral actions, there's going to be plenty of those in the good pile because society thinks it's immoral for me to be a Christian. So then the day of judgment, the reality of reward and loss hinges upon faith, not works. Yes, it is the things that have been done in my body, but what happens when I exercise faith? I am given grace. I do a set of works in that grace because it, that's the grace in which I stand because it's yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me in the life which I now live in the faith. I, li- or I live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, when I live in a manner that pleases God, it is because I am walking in faith and I am tapping into that grace and it is producing the works that justify the fact that I, in fact, have that grace. Therefore, the works that are produced that will be in that pile of gold, silver, and precious stones is the product of faith, which I can only tap into by grace. Do you see it? The day of judgment will not technically be a day of of reward for the actions that I have performed, but rather a day of reward for the faith that produced the actions that I performed. Because outside of that faith, I cannot produce the actions in a manner that pleases God. So they're not going to be in the pile of gold, silver, and precious stones. They're going to be in the pile of wood, hay, and stubble. Because I was producing those actions in carnality, not in faith. Why would God reward me for works when works are not what pleases Him? Works are not what pleases God. Works don't please God. Faith pleases God. That's what that pile represents. The works that are the actual outworking of the faith. The works that were produced in my life by faith. And that faith I tap into in only one way, Grace, other way around. I tap into grace by faith, but you know what I mean. Faith that produced the grace to bring about the works. That's what I meant. Hopefully you're with me by now. We've kind of come full circle. I hope you're there. Faith pleases God. Faith is what is rewarded. Faithlessness is where the loss comes in. And what does this mean for grace? This means that the day of judgment is still a day defined by the grace of God. Can God give absolute grace and allow for a day of judgment? Yes. It is not a day where my effort or my merit or the concept of debt is being judged. That is not what is being judged on that day. Not for the believer, not for the unbeliever. So that when John 3.18 says, he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, it does not say because he has done many wicked works. Now, yes, wicked works are the evidence of that. Paul says that several times, where he says that because of these things, the wrath of God falls upon the children of obedience after he lists a bunch of things, or they that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God as with the works of the flesh. But it is not the works themselves that are the problem. It is the fact that those works show that they do not fear God, that there is no fear of God before their eyes, that they have no faith in Him and they have not exercised faith, therefore they have not pleased God. And we know that they have not exercised faith because their life is producing the works of the flesh, not the works of the Spirit. The efforts of this life are only a representation of faith or a lack of faith. Worked out in my life, the works of unto righteousness, They are a representation of the faith that pleases God worked out in my life as God graciously empowers me to do so by the spirit which he has given unto me, not by effort of my own. Yes, my body is the one that is doing the work, but my spirit in connection with the spirit of God is the one that is compelling it. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live yet not I but Christ liveth in me. No effort of my own no merit of my own no uh, not unto debt or obligation and to fall short of such reward should absolutely cause us to fear. That will make that a fearful day. But that fear is not designed to call us to reform our actions. That fear is designed to cause us to exercise faith in God's promises so that God may then reform our actions as our faith is inevitably worked out by grace unto righteousness. And this is what makes us visible testimonies of the righteousness of Christ in this world the gracious gifts of God that we tap into by faith with an ever-conscious eye toward the world that is to come. So, does a day of accountability and judgment reconcile with the biblical realities of grace? Absolutely. Because grace is given to every man by one thing and one thing alone. Faith. Faith. And faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, is the singular thing that pleases God. So that the day of judgment is a day where God will judge the unbeliever and the believer. Different judgments we would believe, great right throne versus um, the, the uh, Bema seat, as it were. But they will judge, this thing alone will be judged. Faith. Yes? the faith into salvation, that's the Lamb's book of life, and then then the other books are opened and these are the books of our works. But which works will be in the gold, silver, and precious stones? Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That pile will be a pile of actions compelled by faith. And the loss will be a pile of actions that were faithless in character. Maybe moral, maybe immoral, maybe religious, maybe irreligious, but faithless in character because then it does not produce the works Through grace, because grace is tapped into by faith. And if I didn't have the faith, I don't have the grace, which means it is a carnal work, not a spiritual work, which means it is loss before the throne. But if I exercise the faith, then God gives the grace. Then the work that is done is a spiritual work tapped into by God's grace through his spirit unto reward before his throne. On the merit of faith, manifest through actions and efforts, make no mistake, because faith inevitably produces works. But it is the faith which will ultimately be the foundation of that judgment. So that if we as God's people want to be ready for the day of judgment, the call is not a call to. Dig deep into your own self-realization and self-discipline to do more good things. The call is to believe God more, more faith, that we might be ushered into the grace wherein we stand and through that grace walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. And may we do so always keeping in mind what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Do you see it? This is what I'm talking about. Everything that you are and everything that you have of worth in this life before God is actually the worth of Christ through grace and as you see that as you see that that as as you live this life and 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 maybe People come up and commend you for your responsibility or your maturity or your wisdom or your faith. And they say, wow, you're an example. Uh, You're an example of of, of faith. You're an example of of what a Christian ought to be. And that should not lift you up in any way, shape or form in any sort of a pride. Because as as you hear what they're saying, what you actually hear is, wow, I see Christ in you wow, Christ is doing a work in you. And that does not commend you. That commends Christ in you. And so you begin to recognize that. And you say, God, you've given me this grace by which to see and to know all of these things. And I don't want to take any, even the smallest bit of that for granted. And I want to push that grace to its maximum. I want to max out your grace in my life. So I'm going to labor harder than anyone. I'm going to work harder than anyone. I'm going to study harder than anyone. I'm going to pray more. More. I'm going to read more. I'm going to serve more. And then as you as you are determined to take this grace of God that He's given to you and to live it out to the max, you come to the realization that you can't even do more without His grace. It's grace from beginning to end. And when you stand before God, when we talk about the concept of us casting our crowns before His feet, and you say, wait a minute, why am I going to throw all of this all of this gold, silver, and precious stones at Christ's feet? I earned that. You didn't. No, you didn't. You believed that and then the grace of God that you tapped into by faith produced in you works through the grace of Jesus Christ that then brought about that pile of gold, silver, and precious stones. That's why the crowns are cast at His feet because He earned them. Not you. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Grace from beginning to end. Faith from beginning to end. And when judgment comes, that which commends you will actually be commending Christ in you. Grace through faith. Faith is the only thing that pleases God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.